Good. Hello and welcome to Hello Gummer the Podcast. I'm your host, Abdullah, and with me today is Richard Green. Not to com- not to be confused with Richard Green, the actor who passed away, and, and H. Richard Green. So that was confusing when it comes to Google searching you, because... Yeah. There are a lot of Richard Greens on on uh, on the internet, apparently. I was named after the 1940s, 50s heartthrob Richard Green. Yes. <laughs> he played uh, one of my favorite TV series ever as a kid growing up because of his, his name, but also was Robin Hood, which was produced in England. I don't know if you know anything about the, uh, the UAC, House of Un-American Activities, anti-communism uh, craziness that went on here in the 1950s with blacklisted writers and directors. Do you know about that, Abdal? Yeah, um, there was a, a, a gag about that in um, Hail Caesar, like with, yes. the, with the Coen brothers. They did that with the whole communist writers <laughs> saying like, <laughs> You know, they black they blacklisted us because we were putting in communist themes in the movies and they didn't like that. Yes, yes. Um, there was a, um, a wonderful movie that Woody Allen did called The Front, which is about a guy who writes screenplays for a, guy, a, a blacklisted screenwriter. He puts his name on the screenplays, which actually happened with Dalton Trumbo wrote uh, Johnny Got His Gun, famous writer. But uh, two of the guys, and I don't even know their names, once they were blacklisted in the States, they went over to England. So in the 50s, they went over to England, and what did they do? They got hired to write a TV series about Robin Hood, who robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. And the, the, the star of that was Richard Green. So I always, you know, I have this Robin Hood complex, I'm sure, <laughs> on some level. Um, you know, yeah. Subversive art is my game. Well, I mean, you know, you're known for being involved with one of the most prolific, you know, filmmakers of all time, you know, Lynch and, you know, your work with him and he's just, just amazing, man. You know, being a part of like one of the greatest movies of all time. It's just, it's, it's a weird feeling. It must be right. You know, waking up and, and, and thinking, man, I'm, I'm part of movie history. Well, you know, I'll tell you a little story about that. If you want, it's an interesting kind of thing. No, go ahead, man. Um, <laughs> Sir, you got the floor. So uh, I'll tell you two aspects of the story. One is when it actually when, when all that happened. Right. Um, I had met David Lynch uh, in the early 70s when I had come down from San Francisco, left my theater company up there, and, and I was on my way to go to Europe. I wanted to hitchhike around Europe as a hippie in the early 70s. I was like 19 years old, see if I could spend the road, you know, a year on the road and survive, you know, big adventure kind of thing. And that's when I met him. I ended up getting stuck in L.A. I was part of an op- the opening bill of a, a show here at the, uh, a new theater venue called the Mayfair Music Hall. And I was doing this improvised verse act that I used to do in it with an English accent. Anyway, David and Jack and Catherine, I knew Jack through my theater company in San Francisco that had emerged from another theater company that Catherine had been a part of. That theater company ended up populating almost all of Eraserhead. Um, when David was doing Eraserhead at the AFI, he cast Jack Nance, who was married to Catherine. Catherine brought everybody in from the circus, the theater company. They're all, you know, everybody, <laughs> just about everybody in Eraserhead is out of the circus in San Francisco. And I was a part of a theater company that, that came after the circus in San Francisco, but incorporated a lot of those folks. So um, there's this sort of long history between us, but we really didn't have much uh, interaction over the years after that. I did see him at Jack Nance's memorial when he died and told him a story about being an evil magician in a show and creating this stuff, and that's what kind of led to Mulholland Drive. 
Um, what's when Mulholland Drive uh, premiered at Cannes? I was in Cannes. I had two films. One that David presented. I don't know Jack, the documentary about Jack Nance. That was at the film at the Marketplace in Cannes. And I had another film that I had directed called Seven Year Zigzag, which is told entirely in narrated swing, narrated voiceover over swing music, new swing music. Um, interesting film. They were both in Cannes, and I was hired by the festival to be the opening night band for the market and the festival that year. It's the big party that launches it all. And I had a 14-piece international band on stage and four national swing dance champs and ran into David the next day, and he invited me to the dinner and to the opening of the premiere of Mulholland Drive, and I got a little pin, said Mulholland Drive, which I have lost to this and for two years, I wore the pin every day. And I resolved after a few months that I would take the pin off when a week went by where nobody told me how wonderful I was in Mulholland Drive. So as soon as a week went by and nobody mentioned Mulholland Drive, I would retire the pin. Two years, two years because of the cable, because of, of my friends in the entertainment industry, just whatever, I wore that pin. And at that point, I was moving away from acting into uh, totally into voiceover and wanting to write and direct film and continue doing music. And I thought, you know what? If I never act again, I have done something. I have created something that no one else would have created the way I created that role. And it's based on stuff that David had seen me do years before and stories that I told him. It was this wonderful opportunity to, to create something with David, a character and, a, and something that's last. It's had a great deal of... And I kind of walked away from acting at that point. I just continued on voiceover and used the income from voiceover to make movies and, and, and music. That's what I've been doing all my career. Interestingly enough, you can't pay the bills on that. And when you see the movie that I'm working on now, which is... I don't know if you know anything about this... Abdullah, do you know about uh, the film? Uh, I know Catherine, the log, log lady. Yeah, it's the story of Catherine Coulson, Jack Nance's wife, the log lady from Twin Peaks, one of David's closest and oldest friends, his right hand on eraser head. He credits her as doing more to help that than anyone over those years. They were as close as two people could be. And working on this woman's life, which was so extraordinary in so many different areas, has humbled me in a, a, a wonderful way. You hear Kyle MacLachlan, you know, a very successful actor, a much beloved character, certainly from Twin Peaks and Desperate Housewives and Sex in the City and whatever else he's doing now. You talk about, you hear him talk about just wanting to get more work. You hear Kimmy Robertson talk about the same thing. You hear, you see in this movie that actors are people and that artists are people with an extra burden. And the extra burden is all of us as human beings have to make a living and have to pay feed ourselves and treat people well and have relationships and live and take care of our, our world artists have an extra burden on top of that they have to do something new it's not enough if, if you want to be an artist you can't hack it out and do the same thing you did last month just because they'll pay you to do it there are plenty of writers that do that there are plenty of actors directors musicians that just keep writing the same damn song but that's not art what is art is the expression of something new in a new way that someone is compelled to make and once you're in the game of making art you do what you have to do to survive you sell your skills if you're lucky enough to or you sell your labor or you sell your your you know I know a lot of musicians that make a living you know doing accounting work because they have heads for numbers and that's how they support themselves so they can make the kind of music they want to make 
about six months ago, I realized that my life and David Lynch's life is virtually the same. I'm not saying I'm anywhere near as talented as he or accomplished or complicated or wonderful or anything. I'm just saying what he does every day when he wakes up is virtually exactly the same thing that I do every day when I work, wake up. We each have a cup of coffee. I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. He probably puffs a lot. We each then meditate, and then we just go about making shit and, and, and trying to make it good. I have a voiceover career, so I get... Uh, auditions thrown at me during the day and I, I do them as I can and book what I can and do that work and you know I like everybody else have family and friends and, and obligations I'm lucky enough at this point in my life that I'm working on a film that I just adore and that I'm so inspired by every day because of all the people that I know that do this stuff of, of waking up every day trying to keep food on the table and make art Catherine maybe did it best maybe not the best artist you could argue that's all a matter of taste but in terms of living the life of supporting other people of building a bank account of support and love and cooperation and collaboration man you're going to be blown away when you see this movie she was something else man, I, I mean i can't wait man because i think you know we forget as as moviegoers that you know the people who, who make these movies are people who have to make a buck and they have to you know keep grinding <laughs> gears until until they find something that works it, it, the illusion is is that you know you make it and then everything's fine you know everything's great people you know Catherine was an international cult icon who flew all over the world to go to festivals supporting Twin Peaks <clears throat> supporting Twin Peaks and she did it because she loved the people and she loved Twin Peaks but it also afforded her the ability to put her daughter through school as did uh, <clears throat> residuals she got off her racer that's we all have to live that's the <laughs> you know and and in terms of art, if you don't live, if you don't have life, if you don't experience the joys and sorrows and the pains and the fears and the anxieties and the hopes and the dreams, what have you got to make art about? That's a very good question. that <laughs> no. I'm pretty sure like every everyone asks themselves, every every creative asks themselves that like, you know, if you haven't had an extensive existential crisis you know what are you doing this for tell me a little bit about you as we move into this and what, what, what first of all tell me how you would like this interview to play out no no i mean i love just just having a conversation you know just having a conversation because i don't think we we as human beings have conversations well at least meaningful conversations anymore i mean you know we could sit here and talk about your career hours on end and we could talk about the theories but i'm pretty sure you get asked that a lot like oh what what does it mean what does the magician represent and like that's that's like pretty much like like that's your that's uh you know the one thing people know you from but you've also done a very extensive you know you know you've done a lot of voiceover work that i'm pretty impressed by because i keep forgetting like oh yeah he was hugo strange when um you know on the batman when um Frank Gorshin passed and he took over the role and I couldn't tell the difference between the two. Like I couldn't tell if it was Frank or Richard doing doing Hugo yeah. Strange. <laughs> wonderful story about that, actually, if you like. Oh no, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to take it back and start the story at Cal Arts in the seventh. Right, Cal Arts, California of the Arts School here in Los Angeles, founded by Walt Disney, developed by radical leftist artists. <laughs> And then forever in conflict with, you know, with its administration. Wonderful school. So um, I graduated from there. I was I was fortunate enough to be given a, a, a wonderful scholarship by Robert Benedetti. I did a four-year program in three years because that's all the money he had. 
And he promised me unwittingly he was wrong. I was there, that I could make films. I was there on an acting scholarship, but I wanted to make films as a director. And he said, "Oh, you can do that here." And it was bullshit. You, there was no way to do it except the way I did it, which was I made films. When all the film students would leave at eleven o'clock at night and close the editing rooms, they would hand the key to me, and then I would do my work till the morning. My first film was like that. Um, it was facilitated by a guy named Michael Mann, not the famous director, but uh, Daniel Mann, the famous director's son, Michael Mann, who has been a production manager, location scout, great photographer, really cool guy. Um, anyway, uh, Benedetti, uh, who brought me in, Robert Benedetti, innovative theater person and, and a film producer eventually, um, he decided that we were going to do A Streetcar Named Desire. We were going to do it um, with two different main casts so that the four leads, right, um, Stanley and Blanche and Stella and Mitch, would be played by different actors. And then all the sub Serbian cast, all the cast around that supporting cast, would be the same people in both production. That we would work on the same set, but there would be two different set designers, so they would dress the set different. There would be two different directors, so the play would be interpreted differently. There would be two different lighting people, so the play would be visualized differently. And we would run them in rep for a couple of weeks. This was in my last year at CalArts. And I got to play Stanley Kowalski. And, you know, really interesting, during the course of that show, I got the best direction I ever got from a director in my life. And it was from Robert Benedetti, who was directing our production. Um, I was playing Stanley, who was, you know, basically an animal. And, you know, with no filters, no couth, if you will. Um, and I'm smoking a cigarette. I smoked a lot in those days, so it was easy to do. Um, and we, we just finished the scene, and Benny said, Richard, take a puff of your cigarette. So I took a puff of my cigarette, and I blew it out, and he said, I just watched you do that. You tasted that cigarette when it was coming into your mouth, and when you blew it out, you put a stream, you, you directed a stream up over my head. You know, you were thinking about that smoke. That's not Stanley Kowalski. Stanley Kowalski's a fucking animal. If he's smoking, he's inhaling it. He's sucking on it, enjoying it, but not thinking about it. He's not in his head. And it opened the character to him. So at the end of the play, after he has a son, right? Stanley Kowalski has this long speech about having had a son. And I did, you know, I did a good job. Everybody liked my production. We went first. So it was a two-week run. I got to do it seven times. The other guy got to do it seven times because we alternated every night. Well, I started. So after my run was over, I got to see his show. It was a completely different characterization, a completely different production. Everything was completely different except that scene. That scene was so specifically written. That monologue was so true and real and honest and heartfelt that I interpreted it exactly the same way as the other actor interpreted it, even though our character interpretations and the production's interpretation were diametrically opposed. When I got a call from my agent 40 years later, 30 years later, saying, hey, we're sending over an audition. Can you match this guy's voice? They didn't tell me what it was. They just sent it. And I did a, a, a I worked out, of, I had my own booth, I still do, and I work in Pro Tools, which is an editing software that allows you to, to control audio. And so what I did was, is I took this voice that had like four or five lines, it was, you know, maybe a minute long. I knew that it was something to do with Batman because the word Batman was in there. It was, well, Batman. And I broke it down to phrases. So... First you hear, well, Batman. And what I figured is, okay, and this first time I ever tried this technique, I would take and go and put his, well, Batman, and then leave a space for me and then put, well, Batman. 
and a space for me five times. So I broke it up on every line so that you could listen to this thing and each phrase would repeat five times with space for me to record between. And I, I went through the whole thing once and then I went through the whole thing twice and I had now ten versions of me going, wow, Batman. And I could see which one was closest to the one on the recording. And then I put that into a file and I built the character based on what sounded most like the guy I was trying to make in my voice I booked the job okay I'm told that it's that it's uh god his name just escaped me you just said it a second ago too Hugo Strange no not Hugo Strange but the actor uh Frank Gorshin Frank Frank Gorshin who I, you know, I adored as a child. He was the best impressionist I ever saw in my life. This skinny little guy could make you think he was fat old Alfred Hitchcock. He was amazing, French portion. So I was, I was, I was like, whoa, okay. And I was hired for a job on Thursday, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, in you know, the Warner Brothers Recording Studios. Okay. And I figured I was going to go in. He had died, and I figured they were in the middle of an episode, and they needed me to fix a couple of lines. At 9 o'clock that morning, I had another job in my own voiceover studio. But at 8.55, a script arrives from Warner Brothers for that day. And it's an entire Hugo Strange script. And I don't have time to even read it, right? I don't know. I figure I'm just going to go fix some stuff, right? So I get to the studio at my 12 o'clock or whatever the session was booked for, and I walk in, and uh, Capizzi, Dwayne, I think it's Dwayne Capizzi was the director, went on to do a lot of Transformers work. Dwayne Capizzi was there, and he knew my work from Mulholland Drive, so immediately made me feel comfortable. It was unlike any... animation session I'd ever done because they'd all been uh, with lots of other actors there except for the Ant Foley and he said to me that we were doing a new episode and and the script that I had been sent that I hadn't had time to read because they got it to me that morning all of those lines had to be recorded today and I'm like (laughs) really okay uh, well we started he was you know he was already a fan of mine. It felt, you know, reassuring to have somebody feel good about my initial work. And I trusted him. And what I found was that just like the writing that Tennessee Williams did in Streetcar Named Desire that made two actors choose the same approach to that monologue, the character that had been developed by Frank Gorshin for Hugo Strain, in conjunction with whoever was writing those scripts, and it may have been Dwayne, was so defined that I could just put it on and live in it and not think about, well, what would Frank do here? Just play the role. Just take those those rhythms and that feel and that emotion that, that he had been able to generate in me and play that role. And uh, it, it felt as natural and as easy and as sort of predetermined as it had reading Tennessee Williams. And, and, you know, was it, you know, were you surprised that, you know, they just wanted you, they wanted you for the entire series? No, I was delighted. Surprised? <laughs> I thought I was going to clean up somebody's work. And the fact that I took over the role and did the rest of the series and loved doing it, loved working it, loved doing the character, fun character, you know, wonderful because it's so, you know, you chew up the scenery, you know, it's, it's, ver- it's vocally all over the place. He's this evil motherfucker, you know, <laughs> who just delights in it. And yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's really fun to do that role. And I, 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 I think of, you know, I think of it as Frank's role, to be honest with you. I, I feel connected to it. It's something that I've done, but I feel it was like Frank. I was, I was, I was doing Frank Gorshin's you go strange, even though I was, you know, it was me and I was interpreting it and I'd take every compliment anybody wants to give me, I'll take. But Frank Gorshin, amazing guy. 
I mean, because I couldn't tell the difference. Like, I literally could not tell the difference because, you know, you listen to a lot of actors and you can tell, oh, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. But, you know, I go back and watch those episodes and I'm like, man, like, when it comes to voice matches, they they pretty much fucking nailed it down because I can't tell the difference. <laughs> wow. I've used that same technique in other places it, and it's worked for me. I did uh, I did Jeff Bridges on a, some trailer one time using the same technique. Oh, really? It's, it's interesting where it's work, you know? That's ultimately what it is. It's work. You know, is it fun? Yes. Is it inspiring? Can be, yeah, if the scripts are good and the circumstances are good. But it's work, you know? I mean, and, and, and like, what's your process of, like, playing, like, because with voiceover, you can pretty much play these otherworldly characters, and, like, how do you find the humanity in, in some of these guys? Well, I mean, that goes back to just basic acting stuff, you know? Um, I think that you have to find the humanity in yourself. You have to allow yourself to just assume that every character feels good about what they're doing or feels like what they're, they have to do what they're doing, that it's the right thing for them to do. Even when they know it's the wrong thing for them to do, that can be deliciously, painfully exciting and thrilling. Ever play a character where you have to kill somebody else, you know? I had this conversation just, I can't remember with who, I think it was with Jane who's actually joined me listening in on this call um and the conversation i found there's a show on now right now called the undoing it stars uh you grant and nicole kidman i would say it stars nicole kidman and you grant um and donald sutherland plays an important role and at one point donald sutherland is a very rich man who's whose daughter's husband is accused of murder and it's a very murky situation and his, his his grandson is being forced out of this high-end preppy school where Donald Sutherland has spent a lot of money and he threatens the schoolmaster and he threatens him by basically telling him that he's a cocksucker he says cock not cock but cocksucker and that doesn't mean that in in a, in a in a gay euphemism or you know any way like that he means it in the old-fashioned way of a guy who will fuck over anybody who hurts his family and they come in on a tight close-up of uh, Donald Sutherland when he says this and it's the most evil thing I have ever seen in a film maybe on television because you look in Donald Sutherland's eyes and you I feel the absolute presence of evil of vindictive pleasurable satisfying vengeance and evil that is so dark and so scary i imagine that the if it would have been real the schoolmaster would have peed his pants i think and the, the conversation ensued from that that my belief is that we all have it all in us all of those feelings desire to kill murderous rage love fear all all the feelings are there within us and that as actors we're tapping into that stuff and it's fucking evil it is evil I can go there. I can go to that place in my where I, I create an imaginary circumstance for myself and I emotionally react to that imaginary circumstance. That's what acting is. Let's pretend that, that Abdullah is, is a, a, a radio interviewer and he's in a country somewhere other than the United States and that Richard is a, a successful voiceover actor who works with a famous director in somewhere in the United States, in Los Angeles. Let's, let's pretend that that's who we are and have a civil conversation. That's what we're doing. But if for some reason I believed you were some crazy CIA plant getting me to talk sedition, I could, you know, if I had enough proof, I could, that's what, that would be the reality. What's the difference? If you feel it and perceive it, it's real in that perception. Make any sense? 
Man, it does because you know we. I mean, I always find it interesting, like when when actors like have to tap into a darker, darker part of their personality that they usually keep hidden, but you know, from the world, and but they're like, you know, the, this is a character that's, you know, I'm playing like a murderous robot hunting down two two teenagers. Like you kind of have to go dark. You kind of have to go all the way. You kind of have to be like, okay, this is a remorseful killing machine who cannot be reasoned with and they cannot like you can't talk them down like this is like this is this that's the character or you know you go that way that's one way you could also go with this is a completely unfeeling killing machine that you can't talk down i hate robots i'm like i won't go if you go there are supermarkets where there's 10 people in line and two self-checkouts, I will not do the self-checkout for two reasons. One, I think it's bad business for our country to be paying machines to do work that real people should be doing and that they do it better. They do it with more humanity and, and empathy and help and assistance and machines don't do that. And you cannot reason with machines. They are absolutely, I'm a charming, verbally persuasive human being. I have made my life's income by being sincere and, and, and seductive and convincing and influencing all of using my talents. They don't work on a fucking robot. (laughs) It's like all of my skills are out there. The robot doesn't care. Either put your put the the food in the bag, or I'm shutting down the transaction. Do it my way. It's it's in, inhuman. And I think ultimately, uh, the things that scare me about AI are not that 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 artificial intelligence is going to going to go beyond ours because I have not seen AC, which is artificial creativity. Nobody's shown me any of that. So we're always going to be dominant. We're always going to find a way to survive. But it's artificial intelligence. It's inhumane. It is literally non-human. It is literally has no empathy. It literally has no connection. And I think the only thing that will save us as a culture and as a race and as a, a, a you know mankind, humankind, is empathy. And I think I, I was I wrote a song. We were working on a tune today about this. You know, I don't understand in my country. Uh, you maybe american i don't know i know that we're speaking from where are you abdullah uh kuwait and i was i'm I'm actually kuwaiti but i have an american accent so you have a complete american accent (laughs) one of my very good friends a super talented super talented guy um i think it was kuwait um named Pedro Correa. His mom and stepfather taught English. I think it's just all in Kuwait. And he lived in Kuwait for a year. He made a lot of videos when he was a teenager. Now he's in he's in Hollywood. He's making features. He's a really good actor, good-looking guy. He's going to have a successful career, I think. But we talked a lot about, you know, about Kuwait life being very different than American life, except in certain compounds and areas, I guess. Um at any rate, where were we? I got us off on a really silly digression. No, I mean you were you were just talking about like why you can't why you don't trust AI and creativity because you know AI can't create as as humans do. Like it, it's not. I, yeah, it's empathy. I think it's empathy that's the that's the issue in this country. We've just been through a very divisive election. Um, my guy won. Not my, not my guy, although I rooted for him all the way. You know, I'm, uh, I believe that we need to go to a much more progressive agenda in this country. We've just been pulled to the right for so long. Um, but what it freaks me out that such a goodly percentage of my fellow countrymen voted for Donald Trump. When, to me, looking at all kinds of media, with the exception of 
of Fox News and, and extreme right-wing media, the evidence that there's incompetence and malfeasance and corruption and uh, is is it, it, it's irrefutable. It's all it's all right there in front of us. I can't under I don't understand how anybody could support this person. I just I don't understand. It's not that I you know I did I I don't understand. I can't say that about a lot of stuff. I'm an actor. My job is to understand. Is at least to be able to put myself in someone else's shoes, right? Look at from their values in their shoes. How would this feel? I used to have arguments with a friend of mine named Alan Rutherford. He was uh, studying history at San Francisco State, and I was doing theater in San Francisco at the time. This was early 70s. And, you know, he would say, he would come back from studying, you know, the, the, the great, you know, robber barons, you know, and the Fords and all these people who took advantage of so many um, outraged. And I don't, he would say, I don't understand how Ford could do this. And I would go, well, if you were looking at it this way, and if you were looking at it this way, then you could see this. And I would find a construct that would allow me to look at the world. And, and that's what actors do. You know, give me the, the, the words that I say, tell me the actions that I do. And I will find a way to put all that together in a way that makes me feel justified and serves what I believe the larger purpose of the play is. The artist in me is trying to interpret that larger purpose. The actor in me, the craftsman, is trying to service it. Just service it. You know, and depending upon the director and the playwright or the film writer or the director and the producer that you're working with, how much they want you to interpret is sometimes very limited. You audition for a role. You give them an interpretation in the audition. That's what the audition is. Here's my interpretation of this role. And if they buy it, that's usually fucking what they want. They don't want you to come and explore it with them or bring in, hey, I got a couple of new ideas. What if the guy has a German accent? They don't care, especially if you're being hired as a guest star on a TV show or a couple of days. I know in the bigger movies, just like in, in, in theater, casting is important and working and developing a relationship with the director and understanding the concept of the piece so that we can all make choices. That's not how television works. And most film, which is all on budgets and time frames and stuff. They hire you based on the interpretation you show them when you go in. Now, I'm not at the level of an actor who's being sought out by directors based on my previous work. And in, in those situations, it's more like that. In my case with Mulholland Drive, I didn't audition for Mulholland Drive. David called, had to, hadn't seen me in years, had, a couple of years, and had to track me down through Catherine in Oregon to find me. Couldn't even remember my name. My studio got a call from uh, from uh, Catherine in Oregon calling Donna, who was also in her original theater company and produced I Don't Know Jack and is an executive producer of I Know Catherine, the log lady, and a producer of Seven Years Exec, to look for the guy that David was looking for, a guy who was really good with words and used to be a magician. And Catherine couldn't figure out who it was and called Donna, and Donna couldn't figure out who it was. And Frankie Wilson, B. Phipps Wilson, who's an eraser head, was working for us on I Don't Know Jack at the time. She couldn't figure out who it was, and I said, what's this all about? And they told me, and I couldn't figure out who it was. Who do we know? And then I remembered that I had told David about being an evil magician once, and he used to watch me improvise verse. So I thought maybe that was it, and it turned out to be the case. And now I'm really down a rabbit hole because I have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I love it. It's just like going from one place to another and, you know, trying to keep track of it. It's just, you know, <laughs> as is life, you know, we're constantly... Tell me about you. What are you doing? How? What's like? What is life like? Wait. How do you spend your time? No, what man. I mean, the, no, man. I mean, this this whole fucking virus has just got you know this this year has been a complete nightmare because 
you know, we had the whole total lockdown and then partial lockdown. And then the government was like, oh, you know, if you guys don't abide by the rules, we're going to go back to total lockdown. But of course, that was just an empty threat because they knew that they couldn't, you know, keep the country closed up because the economy was suffering. And, and they were like, fuck it, we're you know. Wait, no, not America. <laughs> no, I mean, because because that's that's my, you know, like that's my experience of like what's been going on here you know, this, this entire year. And it's just been really frustrating because it's like trying to find like any, any ounce of creativity to make me forget about all the, all the fucked up shit that's going on in the world is just, it's just hard, man. Really is. And normally, how do you spend your time? Like normally, like before it was, you know, a year ago, I would just wake up, you know, take a shower, go to work, you know, do it, you know, it's a boring office job. It's it's not, you know, it's not like I'm changing the world or anything, but, you know, it's just, you know, you get paid. You get paid. That's the point. Yeah. You got to be able to, you got to be able to survive before you make art. You got to yeah. be able to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Survival is right? Yeah. Um, you know. You've been doing podcasts and, and huh? but you've been doing podcasts for how long? Um, I've been doing this podcast for, God, at, since 2012. So. Great. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Amazing. And your audience, who mostly listens? Um, like a lot of people. Um, you know, I mostly just focus on the voiceover side, but I realize like if I just make every every episode about like voiceover, it's gonna get boring because I there's just like there there isn't like so much. There's only like so much questions you can ask before it gets really really boring. And I and I thought to myself, okay, let's forget about the roles. Let's forget about all this all this shit. Who's who is the person behind the voice? Who is like the person? Like, because I'm interested about you know I'm interested in, in human relationships and how we react, how we interact with each other, and just like who's, you know who who is the who is the man behind the mask? Who is um you know? So, I love it. I have a couple of uh, of things about voiceover I think you might enjoy, but I want to use the restroom. Can I take a two second break? Here yeah, yeah, sure. So here's a couple of quick stories and. Uh, and then we can chat for a bit more, and then I should probably get back to editing this movie. Um, yeah, because I don't want to keep you up too, too much. <laughs> I know you're a busy man. So one of the things that happens when you're a voiceover, at least in town here, is that everybody who has a voice that people remark on has somebody who's who thinks that they should be a voiceover person. And so about once every couple of months, maybe sometimes it's more often, I will get asked, Hey, I've got this, you know, my cousin or my boyfriend really wants to get into voiceover business. They don't know about it. Would you be, would you do me a favor and talk to them? And, and, you know, and I don't, I turn some down, but mostly I, I'm willing to spend a half an hour giving someone the rap, which is, uh, you know, what I perceive the voiceover business to be about. It is a half an hour. I'm not going to go into it now at all. <laughs> but um, I've thought about what the voiceover business is. And one of the questions that gets asked is, is it the voice? You know, you have a great voice. Is that why you have a voiceover career? And my friend's got a great voice. And should he, could he have a voiceover career? And my thing is, the voice is the instrument. It isn't the instrument. Miles Davis, by my mind, is the 
greatest horn player I ever heard. I love Miles Davis. Love listening to Miles. Miles Davis had one of the best cornet trumpets ever made. Any high school trumpet player could play that cornet and get a beautiful sound because it's a cornet of great beauty. The instrument's wonderful, but they ain't Miles Davis. It ain't the, the instrument. It's what the instrument plays. It's the interpretation. It's the feeling and the empathy. I believe it's all about empathy. I believe that if the person who is playing that feels that thing, then we're going to hear it. We may not understand how or why. We may not be able to describe it, but we will feel it. Empathetic. So the other thing that I'll share with you is what I say or I have over the years said to new producers that I'm working with, especially when I'm working with them all exclusively online. Like there's a lot of people that I've done a lot of work with. I've never met them. I don't know what they look like. We just meet when we have to do this job, right? Um, and I'm in my booth. And so the the rap here is, okay, this is how I see it. See myself as first violin. I'm hired for my tone, my texture, and my interpretation. But I'm not the composer, and I'm not the conductor. I'm not the writer. I'm not the director. My job is to give you what you need to make this thing work because you're the director or producer and you know what needs to be there. So any way that you can communicate to me that will allow me to give you what you want is fair game. You can even use fruit analogies. And believe me, I've had some of the stupidest fucking fruit analogies you can ever possibly imagine given to me when I've said that. But it's true. If you have a line reading for me, give it to me. I will try and, and interpret that and give it to you. And usually the, there's a strategy here. Um, and it's only backfired on me once. The strategy is that if you tell someone who wants to direct you, that you are completely open to any way that they want to direct and that they, they don't need to worry about whether you're going to give them what they're going to... Whatever they want, you're going to give them. That's You're here. They oftentimes will say, okay, cool. Well, well let me see what you've got. Show me, show me what you're thinking, because I loved your audition. I loved what you did there. So here's this new copy, I know, and here's the music we're doing. Let me, let me see what you got. And all of a sudden, you're collaborating on creating something, and you get less fruit in it. They trust you. That's why they hired you, because you knew how to interpret this. You made it work for them. So just give them more of that. The, the danger sometimes, you get a job and you go into the audition, into the job, and you don't remember the fucking audition. What did I do? You know, if I'm just shooting from the hip on an audition, no, I'll give it a little twang here. Da, 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 and I, don't, I can't hear the audition. It was a bigger problem before I had my own studio and I would go in and just audition at the agents because... I couldn't find it. Now I can find an audition. I get hired for a job. I can go back and find the audition and go, okay, that's what they're buying. Got it. But what I found is I don't have to remember anything. I just have to be empathetic and real at the moment. That if I let it myself interpret it, I'm going to be okay. And if I'm working with a good producer, it'll be okay. And the last thing, last little, you know, nugget that I carry around with me is I always say this to producers if it's true. Thank you very much. I think a great producer is someone who knows what they want when they hear it. So to, to end this little rant, if you like, I'll tell you the one time that it backfired on me. Uh, I got a job. Uh, there's a great LA voiceover recording studio called Buzzies. I don't remember. Buzzy started it like 50 years ago. It's run and has been run for the last 20 or 30 years by Andy Moritz. He had a partner whose name escapes me. Cool guy as well who passed away. And it's, you know, every one of the greatest voiceover guys in, in history have been, and women have been through Buzzies. It's just a great place. I've done movies there and campaigns. 
the first version of Seven Year Zigzag was an audio book, and we produced it there in Buzzies. We did all the mixing, at least. Andy Morris, amazing guy. And uh, you know, lost my track train of thought here. Where was I going on the story? I'm so uh, sorry. That one time it backfired on you. Mm, thank you. Um, I'm over at Buzzies. It's the afternoon, and uh, we're doing some campaign for a store or something in, out of Chicago. And I'm in their studio, and, and Andy's in the booth in his studio. And this guy in Chicago, this producer, and I said, so, you know, you can give me any kind of analogy you want, and we can just keep playing with this. Well, the guy maybe was a David Lynch fan, if I recall, or something, and he just felt like he had the magician, or Richard, or whatever he thought was going on, in the booth, and because the the contract said that, you know, we're going to do this for an up to a two-hour session, this is what it costs, plus each iteration, right? That he was just going to have he was just going to really have fun playing with this toy called Richard Green, the voiceover guy who can interpret it any way we want. And Andy had to step in and shut the guy down because he was just, you know, he was just abusing the privilege. It's the only time it ever backfired. Usually the producers go, okay, leave him alone. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a total dick, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think he was being mean. I just think he really was enjoying himself and, and thought that, you know, I guess I paid I paid for this two-hour session. I might as well, you know, let's try it this way now. Hey, hey, I have an idea. How about we tr you try it? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, I didn't say it. Andy did. Andy said, you know, leave him alone. That's enough. I mean, well, no, actually, that's kind of true of most of the voiceover people I've talked to. Like, there's always, like, the one session where there's, like, you know, can you do it? That was great, but can you do it like this instead? Uh... <laughs> have you ever heard the, uh, the Orson Welles tapes? Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> those are those are fun and and worth hearing yeah no it's amazing because it's like you know i've said frozen peas how many times now <laughs> like it's it's so amazing like even when like even when he's like totally losing like t like at, at his tipping point he's still like very calm and collective throughout that entire yeah. thing which is amazing <laughs> Yeah, what a character. I'm interested in seeing this movie coming out called Mank. Have you heard about it? Oh, I really want to see that. I don't know when it's coming out. December 10th or 12th or something. I saw the other day. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm really interested because I'm like, man, you know, it's Fincher, you know, great subject matter, Gary Oldman. Let's do yeah. it, you know. <laughs> I've been waiting for something good to come out this year because, you know, because of COVID, everything's been pushed back. and it's... I think you're going to really like I Know Catherine the Log Lady. I really want to see it, man, because I'm like, I, I really like the I Don't Know Jack documentary that you guys did. And I'm like, God, I, I really want more. I want more. <laughs> this, this, uh, this is, uh, it goes well beyond. Yes, ma'am. Needs to watch Zigzag too. Yeah, you should. Uh, is there a way? Is, is Zigzag available anywhere, James? I don't even know. It's on Amazon. It is available to purchase on Amazon. Yes. All right. Uh, in in the in the digital version or in a uh, no? DVD? You have to buy a DVD. Oh, he may be in a different region. Yeah. No, I I, I got the it. The film Seven Years Zigzag. If you'll email me, we'll we'll do a little research and find out how you can get it. We were up on uh, iTunes and everything, and then the company that we had hired to to distribute for us uh, went under, and I think a lot of a lot of people's content got stripped off the net. So we're 
you know, I'm, I'm kind of holding it in my back pocket because I think maybe we'll strike some wonderful, all-encompassing production distribution deal with one of the major companies once they see the brilliance of, I know, Catherine the Log Lady. And if they do, it will be because Catherine Coulson is one of the most amazing people any of us ever met. And, and in this movie, some amazing people talk about her. It's amazing. And do you guys like have a release date for that, or when when is that coming up? We don't even have a, a finished date. We're 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 honing in now on our first cut, on a first cut, and it'll go out to our closest, you know, advisors and and partners, collaborators on this to for input before we polish and start. You know, it's uh, structurally. Um, um, I don't even want to tell you what it's going to be, what, what the structure is going to be because we haven't. Until I get that first cut, I'm not talking about it publicly, but it's uh, it's going to be some wonderfully in-depth, an in-depth story that will inspire and teach us all a lot about not only living in a positive, present, conscious, artistic, creative way, but dying that way, too. How about that for a note to end it? And, yeah, that's a great note. Thank you so much for taking the time off to do this, man. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> A lot of fun. It was nice talking to you, and I wish you just luck with your podcast and your own career. And um, Jane, uh, can you and Ab- Abdullah exchange email addresses, and maybe you can keep him up to date, and maybe get him some zigzag info. Absolutely. Um, I yes, I, I have yours, Abdullah. So I will email you, and then you'll have mine. All right. Um, I'll check my email later today. Thank you, Abdullah. We only did an hour. Is that enough for you to get your show out? Yeah, no, no, that's fine. I mean, I, like I said, I don't want to keep you on too much, too long, because I'm like, yeah, you know, you, you guys are busy and you're working on a movie, so it's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm also, just so you'll know, I'm feeling extraordinarily lucky and fortunate to be working on this movie. And, I, you know, I've been on this thing for a couple of years now, and it started to get really interesting just as we entered lockdown. So uh, I'm blessed with having purpose every day despite so many that are feeling frustrated in how they can be productive i'm having like the creative time of my life in some ways right now so i'm grateful for that and don't take it for granted at all all right man thanks so much for taking the time out to do this this has been great thanks let us know when you put it up would you all right i'll I'll email you when the episode's up thanks bye-bye now thank you